Real Photo Show is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club, a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. It is a fantastic way to add to or build up your photo collection. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. And if you've been following the Real Photo Show IGTV or YouTube channel, you know that every month I do a little preview of each of the books. And I now have my book by Raheem Fortune, I Can't Stand to See Your Cry, and I'll be previewing that soon. So sign up at charcoalbookclub.com where you can receive next month's book or you can purchase the books that are still available. Welcome to The Real Photo Show. My guest today is Brendan Bannon. Brendan is a photographer and teacher based between New York and Nairobi, Kenya. And we're going to talk about some of the work that his students are showing at the JKC Gallery right now as part of the Mark and the Memory Show, curated by Ryan Casey, that looks at the ways photography documents and helps people process their trauma. And this work comes from a workshop taught by Brendan and Julian Chanana called The Odyssey, and it's offered to combat veterans as a way to help them process their experiences through the use of the camera. Uh, we'll also talk about how Brendan suffered from his own depression while taking care of his mother, who was suffering from MS, and how photography helped him to both stop time when he needed it to, but also to re-engage with the world when he needed to do that. Uh, we're also going to talk about Brendan's many other projects. Uh, he's worked with refugee children, children with AIDS, and he has partnered with many NGOs uh, throughout the years. Uh, it's really a, an incredible, intense, and fantastic conversation. And maybe uh, before or after listening to the show, take some time to check out Most Important Picture, all one word, mostimportantpicture.org, and also the jkcgallery.online, uh, where I will soon have a, a video walkthrough of the show if you can't make it down to the gallery. So let me just give you a little bit of Brendan's bio. Uh, Brendan's work has appeared in the New York Times, Christian Science Monitor, The Daily Telegraph, The Independent, The Guardian, and other international publications. His projects have been exhibited internationally at the United Nations headquarters in New York and other institutions around the world. Um, and there's a lot more which you can read uh, in the show notes. Um, he regularly uh, works with and for uh, international NGOs, including Doctors Without Borders, UNHCR, UNICEF, and Care International. So again, this is a really amazing conversation. Brendan is doing incredibly important work, working with combat veterans and refugee children, and just providing opportunities for people to express themselves and process their experiences through the camera. Uh, it's a really fascinating conversation. So thank you for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's great to meet you. You too. And um, and so you're currently in a show at a gallery that I run down in Trenton. Your the work is a part of a I, I think you call it the Odyssey Project. Was that the full name? Correct. Yeah, the Odyssey Project. Yeah. And so you're um, you're part of the show by Ryan Casey called "The Mark and the Memory." So this is actually a, a pretty timely episode. We had a, a pretty fantastic reception. The, the turnout was nice. We had nice artist talks, and we have a few more talks coming up in the summer, and uh, and then a closing talk in September. So hopefully some of that will be able to... I know you're incredibly busy, so hopefully that will uh, fit into some of your schedule at some point. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to do a, a virtual walkthrough of the show, so you'll at least be able to see that too, because it looks fantastic. Excellent. Yeah, I'm excited to see all of the work that's in there, and um, the student... It's actually not my photography it's my students that's right. photography that's in the work and that that's what we want to talk about too and and that that's that's fantastic yeah so yep. I, I know that they're all excited and over the moon to be included and i'm super proud of them um they're all combat veterans who made photographs that dealt with uh their experience coming home from war and um the ones that were involved in the show were all really eager to get down there. So you may see them at the gallery before long because oh, good. they good, were good. Very, yeah. very excited to be involved. 
make sure that they um yeah they uh they let me know who they are that they're part of this uh work project if they pop into the gallery absolutely, absolutely yeah. well yeah is that work part any part of daily dispatches or no daily dispatches okay. was a different project altogether okay and we'll get to all of that uh but i thought we'd uh talk a little bit uh, about you and your background where did you uh where did you study where did you go how did you get into all of this you're you're do you do you consider yourself a, a photojournalist and a teacher and a photographer uh do you go particularly identify as any of those more than others <laughs> you know larry towell beat us all to it when he printed his business card that famously says <laughs> larry towell human being um, <laughs> and uh i wish i'd come up with that but yeah i've uh, i've been identified as a photographer as a photojournalist as a, as an educator um mm-hmm. You know, and in former times, I was identified as a caregiver to my mom who had MS, and before mm. that, probably as a near do well. So there have been all, all, of the all kinds of labels put on me. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. So uh, where did you uh, where did you study? Where did you go to school? You know, I actually left a full tuition scholarship at Antioch College, where I was doing a self-designed major combining American studies and documentary methods to come home and take care of my mom who had multiple Mm. sclerosis. Um, So after a few years at Antioch, um, her condition worsened at home in Buffalo and I left school and spent a decade plus uh, um, trying to be the best son I could be to an amazing mother. And um, in the process, uh, you know, it was was her sole caregiver and and was called on to do you know to do all kinds of things to to help keep her going and moving through her life uh and i think that's really you know that was probably my training for my work in photography was you know just learning how to be how to be present um how to see and feel somebody who is going through life's most challenging moments and to be there with that person you know and in the process probably also went through my own most challenging moments in life and uh had to to figure out how to feel my way through that so it's not your conventional photographic education i didn't go to school and come out with a degree but uh you know i I went through life in a way that shaped me in terms of the questions that i ask of photography and in terms of, um, you know, later on in that experience, starting to use photography to re-engage in the world around me, my world as a caregiver became very, very small. And my curiosity about the world around me was always vast. And photography was the way to re-engage the world, you know, after having to see it in tunnel vision to be proximate and caring for somebody that I loved. And so it was your experience with your mother that, that led you to photography? You know, I had been interested in photography really my whole life. My mom was an amateur photographer and in the 70s had hoped to kind of turn the corner and become a photojournalist, but instead she turned the corner and uh, multiple cirrhosis was waiting for her. So that had a kind of impact on, you know, the dreams that she was able to carry through her life. But, you know, spending time in the darkroom as a four or five-year-old with her Mm. also had a profound profoundly inspirational effect on me. My father worked uh, as, a, as an art critic and later as a curator. So, you know, I was always keen to pull books down from his shelf and, and look at the masters of photography and, you know, impressionists through modern and contemporary art, um, things that he had been tasked with looking at, reviewing, writing about. So my interest in photography was sparked by those, but I think my approach to photography and to teaching was forged through that experience with my mom. Yeah. What, was this all in the Buffalo area? Your, both yeah, your father and your mother? it was, yep. And, and if you don't want to talk about it, it's fine. I, I don't want to pry, but at some point they split and that's how you ended up being the primary caregiver for your mother? Yeah, they split when I was three years old. So in two separate households, I had this kind of uh, you know, each in its own way, uh, uh, a profound engagement in mm-hmm. the arts and seeing. And it was kind of the business of my family. You know, on the one side, I grew up with my mother was a, a refugee from Ukraine. And one of the few things that they brought with them were troves of photographs that 
family had made before leaving and then along their journey. So that was one aspect of the kind of family tradition. And, you know, behind my father was my grandfather, who was an optics researcher and, you know, studied how, how the eye works and refraction. And um, Was that was here in the States too? He was here in the States, yep. Was he like working for uh, uh, Bausch and Lomb or Nikon? Uh, he or? started with American Optical, which mm. was then bought out by Bausch and Lomb and was owned mm. at one point, I think, subsequently by Reichert and Leica. Um, so, wow. you know, yeah. Just, yeah. just by staying in the same place, he worked for all <laughs> of the big companies at one point or another. Yeah, that's so interesting. Was And then was your father uh, attached to a museum or a gallery or a magazine or was he sort of a freelancer? Uh, kind of all of the above, yeah. Oh, wow. He was an art critic at the Buffalo News. Um, then he went on to do independent curating and was hired to be the director of a regional museum in Buffalo dedicated to the watercolor as Charles Birchfield. Hmm. Um, and then from there, he went on to run the Eastman House Museum in Rochester for um, a decade and a half or so, and then came back for another turn as director of the Birchfield in Buffalo. And now um, he's doing some writing and taking taking a, uh, a turn um, as a grandpa. So What's his yeah. name? Anthony Bannon. Okay. Yeah. And your mother's name? Maria Bannon. So that does provide quite a, a context for, I think, the work you do and where you are now. And, and uh, we mentioned it earlier, you're involved in a project called Daily Dispatches. You started a project called Daily Dispatches. And also, do you see what I see with uh, UNHCR for the uh, Office for Refugees? And, you know, these are both projects that uh, in many ways, highlights the work of others. I mean, I think you you see yourself as a a kind of um, facilitator as well, right? Uh, someone who, whose sort of mission and job it is to to help not only um, promote others but also give people a true sense of the world in a sense, right? In in a way, like a, a not not you just um, going to a place, making photographs and sh- and showing your version of something, but actually trying to provide this firsthand experience of what's really happening in the places, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, since the beginning, I think, you know, there have been all of these um, various engagements that are braided together in my photographic practice. And, you know, when I started photographing, I started photographing um, twice, once in my college years as a response to three great friends of mine dying in different car accidents and this Mm. overwhelming sense that, you know, I needed to stop time. I needed to do something to preserve these moments that were ending. And that was my first kind of, you know, the first time I picked up a camera and used it. Then I left university to come home and take care of my mom. I put my cameras on the shelf and um, I ran a house painting business, took care of my mom, and uh, eventually ended up exhausted and clinically depressed and needed to find a way to move forward. I picked those cameras up off the shelf, dusted them off, and used them to re-engage in the world. You know, so the work that I do now as a photographer and a teacher is kind of born out of those two moments. And you know, when I'm photographing, it's a continuation of this permission that the camera gives you to be curious and to act on that curiosity, to have photography as a almost a pretense for meeting people, for exploring places, for knocking on doors that are closed and seeing if they'll yield and open. That's one of the drives. Um, you know, and what that leads to is being commissioned to tell other people's stories when that translates into a, a kind of professional or vocational realm. So I work. I have worked um, for the UN, for Doctors Without Borders, for the New York Times, for other leading newspapers, magazines, and NGOs. As a photographer, um, telling other people's stories, and always in the midst of that, I'm reminded that you know people are really great at telling their own stories too, because part of photographing people is talking to them and listening to them and learning to see how how they see their world. You know, so ultimately you're trying to interpret it. And ultimately when you try to interpret somebody else's view of their own world, you come up short. 
um, <laughs> in one way or another. And to me, the teaching work is often a way of, of engaging people to tell their own stories, you know, recognizing that, that they are often the best storytellers and the, the mm-hmm. deepest at understanding their own lives and circumstances. So, yeah, I can, I can see why, uh, why Ryan chose you and the work you're doing with the uh, students to be part of the mark and memory of mark and the memory, uh, because you've, you did your own sort of processing of trauma through photography, and now you're actually helping others to do the same. N- not always trauma, but sometimes just experiences, but processing those experiences as well. And I'd, I'd love to uh, have you talk more about daily dispatches, because that's, that's such a, a combination and an extension of what you do, because it's, you know, your experience as a photojournalist, your experience with uh, trying to share other people's experiences and now kind of package all together to to be a, a part of an educational tool, but also to provo- you know get this work out in the world uh, from others. It, it started in Nairobi. Is that right? Nairobi, yeah, Kenya? Daily Dispatches was actually, um, you know, I, I wish that I were able to talk about it more as a program um, mm-hmm. than as a project. But while it was intended to be more of a program, it ended up being a one-time project. And oh, okay. as such was a way of uh, creating work. So, you know, there, as a photojournalist, you're often asked to, to tell other people's stories. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're often asked to tell those stories by an editor who's 6,000 miles away. Mm. Um, when you get into people's lives and you get you know, walking the streets of Goma and Congo or Nairobi and Kenya, you see things that, you know, that just surprise the hell out of you and aren't part of the remit um, that you've been sent to cover. Those stories, some of the most interesting ones, end up uh, on the cutting room floor. You know, you don't Mm. always have an opportunity to tell them, but those are the, those to me were always the most fascinating things. And often, you're dealing with, you know, organizational or institutional biases or expectations about what news comes out of a certain place. And, you know, so the Minister of Tourism covering the area of Varunga National Forest, who's working in a colonial horse stable and not able to promote the tourism in his area of Congo isn't a story that a national outlet necessarily want to tell. You know, the the leading hip-hop artists in Nairobi aren't the characters that many newspapers and magazines are looking to illuminate when they try to paint a picture of Africa. So mm-hmm. Daily Dispatches was an attempt to do journalism in a different way, um, to become, you know, m- my own commissioning editor as a photojournalist, working with the writer Mike Flans, and coming up with the story ideas and pursuing them and finding a way to share them. So what we did was we had a series of subscriptions from colleges across America who paid for a feed of this project. And every day we would go out, source, report, edit, produce a story and a photo essay, and then send that out as a broadsheet, which would be printed the next morning and hung in public space in colleges and universities so that students mm. would be confronted with this growing series of stories and images that were completely unexpected. And at the same time, that work was being blogged, and that work can still be found in its archival form at dailydispatches.org. And, you know, it was an opportunity to get work commissioned, to make work, to have it exhibited, and to have it archived uh, all in real time. It was a series of about six weeks of 19, 20-hour days. Um, wow. But it resulted in a pretty cool archive of stuff. And a, Yeah, it's a, it, in some ways you were, you, were, you were your own wire service for universities, right, and colleges. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And as such, we could decide the stories that we thought were important to share and stories that went beyond the kind of single story that was so often told about Africa as a place of pathos or pain or pestilence and show, you know, the the creative side, um, the life force, the, you know, the urban pulse um, and the people who were purveyors of, of change in their own country. 
Yeah, what a great idea. Yeah, it was a riot. Um, super mm-hmm. exhausting. And, uh, <laughs> you know, in the end, the other demands of, of uh, photographic life kind of took precedence over pushing right. that forward as a project. Um, that project no, it was- needs that, something like that needs a lot of uh, a lot of hands on deck and a lot of investment. And so when you're down, someone else is up and all yep. kinds of things, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's an organization. I mean, there's a reason that mm-hmm. newsrooms are drawn to do that <laughs> and not like, you know, two um, super driven yeah. guys with a camera and a computer. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's got to be some kind of large cooperative. Oh, but but I love the idea. I mean, it's really fantastic. And I and again, I think I think it it it, uh, it goes hand in hand with um, this idea of um, providing a, a perspective that's a little less filtered, right? A little less uh, stereotypical of of what the, the what we're seeing, especially in places like Africa. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, ultimately, it's how, how do you be curious about the world and how do you engage it, you know, in in its own terms. And you know, what's news is not necessarily the same story that you've heard before repackaged in a different way to reflect today and your expectations of a place. What's news may be just something that's surprising and illuminates, uh, you know, our common and shared humanity and endeavors. And that really was a focus of daily dispatches. And I think in a lot of ways is a focus of the work that I do. And I think in finding that, you know, even in crisis or especially in crisis, you know, the resilience, the creativity uh, of, of humanity is at the forefront. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you, you may go to a place that's falling apart and people are being tested in ways that, that show you the man's inhumanity demand, but at the same time, the response so often is this overwhelming demonstration of the beautiful aspects of humanity, how one person can step in to save somebody else, how people can create community to overcome the chaos of circumstances, um, all that resiliency of, of people themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that leads us right into this other project. Uh, do you see what I see, which you do with, uh, United Nations high commission, uh, a commissioner for refugees, which they don't really go by that anymore. Right. It's just UNHCR. Yeah. But this was actually putting the the cameras in the hands of of children of refugees, right? So they could document their own experiences. And this is a an ongoing, or is this another one that's sort of packaged and and done? And that's a project that I've revisited a few times. And all mm-hmm. of my educational projects are now under the umbrella of the most important picture. Oh, okay. So if you look at the most important picture you'll be able to see a kind of archive of a variety of these projects all brought together. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And so, you know, do you see what I see? Most important picture, Syria, um, most important picture, Romania, all of those are projects, uh, you know, that are collaborative works with marginalized communities, um, through which, you know, their voices are elevated through photography and an attempt to get that photography, um, and the written testimonies that they provide about their experiences out in front of the public. And so do you see what I see was one of those projects originally done with the UN High Commission for Refugees. Subsequent workshops with refugees were funded by the International Rescue Committee. Those workshops with refugees took place in uh, first in 2007, 2008, and then again 2014-15. And you know, that was the, the kind of the project side of it where people were creating work. And I would work with uh, groups of 10 to 12 students um, in intensive two-week-long workshops in refugee camps. And, you know, through photography, they explored aspects of, of their own lives, their own family history, um, you know, the economy of the refugee camp, um, their hopes and dreams. For the future and you know where they were interested in addressing it the trauma of the circumstances that they'd come through but the you know the real subject of those workshops was the kind of shared common humanity and trying to to give people the 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 venue the avenue to have their voices heard you know their voices are strong and wise and if people outside the refugee camp 
can't hear them, you know, there's a, a whole range of of life that people aren't being exposed to, and no one speaks better to their experiences than those people themselves. Yeah, you know, you, you work for these NGOs, uh, Doctors Without Borders, UNHCR, UNICEF, CARE. Uh, what is it like to, to organize, you know, one of these things? Like, how is that all done? Well, I've organized a whole variety of different projects. I've done things, uh, you know, I started, I think, the biggest the first big international educational project I did was working with HIV positive youth in Romania. And that was uh, organized by a nurse who was serving in the Peace Corps with a group of mothers of HIV positive kids. And we talked and kind of this project came out of our conversations, was supported by the U.S. Embassy at that point. And you know, facilitated by the mothers in this small community NGO in Georgia, Romania. And, you know, some of those kids are still alive today and, you know, have been undergoing treatment and therapy and have their own families, which is amazing because when they were diagnosed in the early 90s uh, with HIV, HIV was thought to be a death sentence. And at the time that I met and worked with them, many were teenagers who were you know, on the cusp of, of adulthood and often finding mm -hmm. out for the first time what it was that they had been struggling with their whole lives. Wow. Often, you know, the, the, the news was kept with them by parents who wanted them to have a more innocent childhood and had mm -hmm. been told that their kids had very short lifespans. So oh, wow. you know, they, they got to puberty, were facing sexual activity, were facing becoming adults and had to know at that point. Um, so this workshop intersected with that moment in their lives um, mm. and then spurred a similar project that I did in Uganda with kids who were orphaned by HIV. And so it seems like each each project kind of catalyzes something else. Most of them have been born kind of modestly out of the circumstances that I'm in and the people that I'm around. You know, as time went on, that's going back to early 2000s, um, the beginning of my photographic life as well. And as time goes on, you know, those projects have become more and more intentional. And the most recent educational project I did was uh, was the Odyssey workshops, and that will be continuing uh, with a new cohort later this year and hopefully become an ongoing offering of kind of photographic education and, and re-engagement through photography for combat veterans to explore the impact of war um, and the long journey home from it. Does that, I don't know actually where you teach. <laughs> where is your, where is it you teach? I mean, I teach just out in the world. Um, I don't okay. teach at you're, any formal organization. You're not, uh, oh, I'm sorry. You're not affiliated yeah. with a, a university I'm not college a, school. I'm not affiliated with a university oh, okay, okay. at all. So all of these projects are, you know, some of them were kind of fee for service based on proposals mm -hmm. that I wrote. Some were mild, mild and modestly grant funded in the beginning. The Do You See What I See was funded by the uh, UNHCR two different departments um, in two different iterations. And then the most recent, the Odyssey, was funded um, with public and private philanthropy led by the National Endowment for the Arts and, you know, supplemented by donations from local and regional foundations in western New York and by, you know, individuals and like my massage therapist gave money to the program. Like, so, hmm. you know, kind of a whole variety of, yeah. of funding yeah. mechanisms. So, um, so you yeah. must do quite a bit of a uh, uh, grant application and, and fundraising activities yourself. The projects take place a lot in partnerships and I've learned mm -hmm. along the way to, to do some of that and have been a partner in fundraising most recently for Odyssey. The, Institutional partner for that was SEPA Gallery in Buffalo, New York, which is a mm -hmm. longstanding artist's uh, space founded in the 70s that's done tons of its own teaching. Um, so they, they wrote, I brought the project to them originally 10 years ago as an idea, and it ended up being shelved. And then 
you know, maybe eight years after that, we started talking again about bringing it out and applied for an NEA grant, which was a challenge grant that gave us the uh, the basis to start funding fundraising locally. And, you know, a lot of that project was also made possible by support from Canon Professional Services, who oh, okay. donated uh, cameras to the project, um, cameras that the veterans are able to keep and are still using today. Uh, oh, that's a great. A year and a half after the project it formally ended. Uh, so, they, you know, each of these projects takes uh, a, a while to develop, I think. Seems to have a life of its own. There are absolutely possibilities for them to continue and i'm at a stage where where i'm looking for ways to continue and formalize uh a series of these projects as kind of longer running opportunities Mm -hmm. you know the impact i think on the individuals who take the workshops the impact on me as a as a leader of the workshops um, and the impact of the work that they make on the wider community, you know, so far has been indisputable. And <laughs> um, I really am looking for opportunities to keep that going for, for all of us. And the, the Odyssey project did that, was that hand in hand with, with your workshops or did that come uh, through the, after, you know, uh, as an idea that because you were doing workshops? Man, the Odyssey project has a really long kind of origin story. Um, Does it? And but in a, in a nutshell, um, when I started photographing, one of my artistic mentors was a World War II veteran who had gone through his own kind of post-traumatic stress after uh, World War II and, you know, found ways to come through it and engage life through painting um, and, and who was art. Um, his name was Joe Orfeo a barber and painter hmm. in Western New York who, you know, sat in his living room and engaged the universe um, <laughs> and refracted it, you know, through through his heart and soul onto canvas every day of his life. Was this at the sort of very early stages of when you were interested in photography? You know, I knew Joe since I was a kid. Um, oh, you know, he taught me how to play chess when I was little, but then oh, when wow. I was dealing with a, a kind of moment of clinical depression when I first started reaching for photography, I turned to him to kind of ask him, you know, how how he made it through his own struggles, and he was instructive and and patient and present for me, and I always wanted to pay that forward in some way, and because he was a combat veteran and the wisdom that he shared um, was paid for by his service um, in the military. You know, it felt right to create a workshop similar to what I'd been doing with refugees, but for combat veterans in the States as a way of kind of honoring Joe Orfeo, his, his work and, and our friendship and what that meant in terms of being transformational in my life. Mm-hmm. So, that's where the original idea kind of uh, that was a germination. Of yeah, the original idea. So I mean, we we have a sense of who your students are, right? It, you you're you're actually creating these workshops for particular cohorts, for particular groups of of people who have uh, perhaps uh, suffered trauma or who have experiences that um, it would be helpful for them to tell through photography, through art. You know, when I teach, I teach a, a more general population. And there are times when traumatic experiences might come up, and I, we have to handle those very carefully. But when you're teaching, there's more than likely a traumatic experience that's going to come through the work um, because of you know the people you want to teach. And so does having that experience of your own with your mother, with your own depression, is that part of how you navigate and, and help others work through the, the work they're doing? Um, I mean, first, I don't ask anybody to uh, directly address their traumatic experiences. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that is really important is to create a, a safe environment for people to talk about and address anything that they need to talk about and address. Um, right. And, you know, that may be um, the struggle that they're having that day in school. It may be something that happened, you know, before they became refugees. 
or it may be at the heart of the refugee experience um, in dealing with the, the refugee population. Or they may want to just explore, you know, beauty where they find it, and that's their prerogative to, to, to do that. Mm-hmm. And the assignments are generated in a way to be extremely open-ended mm-hmm. um, and the culture of the workshop in the classroom is is established early on in a way that is as safe as it can be for the, the people that are in it to express themselves at, at kind of any level. So the subject is never, you know, you're here to, to work through your trauma. Right. But it's an opportunity to creatively engage your life and your circumstances as you find them and to share them first to explore them in the company of others who may have gone through similar experiences second to share them and to see what's generated out of that uh, experience and then third you know to to have the stories that you tell heard outside the classroom by others in the world and each level of that has its own kind of impact and you know both both on the both on the individual and and on the developing community and on the community at large you just you just mentioned the keeping those assignments open-ended is there a a favorite of yours is there one that you've given that you really just love the results i mean each each workshop kind of opens itself up to different possibilities and I've seen astonishing results from everything from, you know, a scavenger hunt to um, an assignment about dreams to uh, double exposures. Hmm. You know, with the Odyssey workshop, the some of the veterans, Nate Maybe actually, who's in the exhibit and I think will be part of a panel mm-hmm. with you guys, who's now in New Jersey, but is a Seneca Indian from the Buffalo area made an extraordinary double exposure where he silhouetted his head and then inside right. his head uh, superimposed uh, the detonation of an IED from a video frame that he'd captured. And, you know, when he brought that into class, it was like well, 10 years of trying to make this workshop happen. And Nate just uh. brought this picture into class. It was recognized by his fellow veterans, you know, the the sound when people saw it is something to remember. Um, yeah, it's a powerful image. It's um, the, the photo is, is it's the head is the photo, the frame of the photo, because it's the silhouette and the, the image is inside the head and it's, it's that smoke and cloud and, you know, and so you can imagine the, the noise and the ringing uh, from looking at the image, uh, especially if you've been through something like yeah. that. Yeah. And if you haven't, you know, you can start to ascertain what that experience might have been like if you've right. not experienced trauma or you haven't had a traumatic brain injury or you haven't been to war and seen things blowing up in front of your face. Like, you will get a sense from that image of what that carrying that experience for a lifetime is like. Um, and that's Nathan Maybe. Nathan yeah. Maybe, yeah. And yeah, yeah. I talked to Nate about it and I said, you know, would you be open to kind of having us give a double exposure assignment because you've found a way formally to talk about here, now, there, then, and the never-ending echo between the two. And, you know, that became an assignment that, that we offered to the next three, four groups of veterans. And, you know, the work that came out of that way of looking at the world was super profound because it was super meaningful to their experience you know they're mm-hmm. having come out of war you know they never leave it completely and coming home they never arrive here completely and there's a lot of life that's lived between those places in the mind um is brianna robinson's work too the um the silhouette on the the wet reflective ground was that part of that double exposure there was a single exposure oh um, wow yeah but wow. brianna did amazing work um mm-hmm. you know in that that solitary figure kind of walking across the wet ground was just such a powerful mm-hmm. image about, you know, about isolation, about resilience. Um, 
it really hit on a lot of different levels. So for those of you uh, listening and wondering where you can see this, I'll have a, a video walkthrough of the of the show at the gallery. You could come to the gallery, but uh, <laughs> I'll have a video walkthrough of the gallery soon and you'll be able to see those images. So that's interesting. Yeah. So it's not like it's not a favorite assignment. It's um, it's the assignment, you know, for that group, um, you know, that lets them work openly and explore things. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've done, I didn't do it in the combat veterans, but I've done it with other uh, workshops as, you know, you've led a series of assignments. Um, and then at the, towards the end of the workshop, I ask people to choose their most important picture. Um, mm -hmm. And the name of the, you know, the, the umbrella organization that I'm running all these workshops through is called the most important picture. That name comes from a photograph made by a young Romanian girl who did a self-portrait of herself uh, in the train station and wrote, you know, this is the most important picture because um, I'm at that age, and she's 13 years old at the time, where I have to think about living and dying. And when I'm gone, they will hold this picture in their hands and look at it and remember me. And, you know, that's the, the organization's named in her, in, in her honor. And I've offered that as an opportunity, you know, for people to pick the most important picture that they've made. You know, if you had to throw away all the photographs that you've ever taken um, and have one photograph represent you and your experience and your vision and how you feel about life, what photograph would that be and why? So it's more of a writing assignment for folks, but, you know, as people are proliferating uh, through photography... Huh. You know, and, and and making more and more things that they're excited about to to be forced with that question of what is the one thing that says you the the clearest. Um, the results of that are always super super illuminating. Um, that, uh, it's a it's a really tough question. It's, I mean, uh, you know, I'm I'm sweating thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking about it with the thousand, you know, someone who's been photographing for 30 some odd years it, that boy that picked that question makes you sweat <laughs> yeah. but the answer yeah. will be illuminating you know right. to you and to right. others um yeah yeah with these workshops too are you um i imagine most of your students are coming with little or no experience in terms of photography the camera the technical stuff things like that so in, in some ways it's um it's a hundred level course, but in other ways it's like a four hundred level course, right? I mean it's it seems it seems both very basic and very advanced uh, at the same time. Yeah, because it's the not, conversations I mean, I'm not are dealing with technical matters. I'm dealing with you know with photography um, as an exploration of the world, as an opportunity to see yourself and your surroundings differently. You know, so it's often taught from a position of one problem solving, you know, because mm. every refugee kid that I teach may not become a photographer, may not be interested in photography beyond the opportunity to do something different for two weeks. You know, but what is the enduring kind of uh, consequence of taking that workshop? And it is to, you know, be able to see and define problems clearly to be able to think creatively in terms of how you solve them. And, you know, those are the things that I'm hoping people will leave with, um, you know, while they may leave behind um, valuable and insightful testimony about the circumstances of their life. You know, the goal, the goal is not to have anybody understand what an F-stop is. Um, the goal mm -hmm. is to have people understand what life is. And, you know, to not understand that just for themselves, but for all of us, you know, so that we can share and expand that understanding. So, yeah, it's a kind of introductory process, but the results, um, you know, are the results and the expectations, I think, are extraordinarily ambitious. And one is mm -hmm. that, you know, we're somehow able to provide a a transformational experience um, in community through photography that meets people, you know, where they are and allows them to explore the depths of life safely and, and in a supported way. And then the, you know, always in the back of my head is, you know, I have every faith in the world that the people that come through these workshops will be able to make work that stands next to 
the greatest photographs of all time, you know, and, and mm-hmm. you know, their work has been exhibited in museums and galleries around the world. The refugee youth work was featured on the Museum of Modern Arts blog. It was uh, shown at UN headquarters. It's been exhibited at schools and universities and galleries and cultural institutions around the world and been featured in leading newspapers and magazines and, you know, 10 countries. So that hope has been borne out by experience. And what a thing it is to see, man, when Hmm. you got a bunch of refugee kids looking at a full page spread of the pictures that they made in the New York Times and Hmm. teasing you as the teacher, like, how long did it take you to get your work in the Times? You know, you're like, well, I was working about 10 years before I got a New York Times assignment. And they're like, well, it only took us two weeks, buddy. Sorry. Um, you know, so the the sense of, of joy and empowerment in the in the public side of seeing their images shared with the world, you know, is part and parcel of, of the process. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about, you know, the things that keep you going. And I'm sure that is that is definitely one of them. Yeah, because uh, this is tough work, right? Yeah. The poster of the exhibit at your gallery, you know, somebody posted it to Facebook and said, I'm still extraordinarily humbled to even mm. think that my work could be part of a, of an exhibit like this. Um, oh, that's great. And that, you know, it's that feeling that any of us who are practicing photographers got the first time our work was published, like, you know, or seen or ex- included in an exhibit. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that may have been our ambition from the beginning, but for somebody for whom it, it, it's almost incidental to see their work and their perspective on life valued enough to stand next to lifelong practitioners is you know, it's a moment that they don't, they don't soon forget. Yeah. And it's a moment that they deserve, you know, because to me, photography is about, is about life and the exploration of life and the expression of life and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the mysteries and, and befuddlements that happen to you along the way. And then the victories over circumstances. And yeah. you know, they share that in a way that that's unique to them. Be they combat veterans, HIV positive kids or, or refugee youth. Yeah, on the Odyssey project, I just want to give a give credit. You're you're also working with a, a veteran and an artist. Is, is, if I say the name, tell me if I say the name wrong. Uh, Julian, is it Julian Chanana? Julian Chanana, yeah. Julian Chanana yeah. was a co-teacher of the Odyssey workshops. Um, so he, together with me, taught f- close to forty combat veterans. Julian wow. himself was a Marine scout sniper who served tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan and comes with his own experience and journey home from war that that he was able to share with the participants and also is a extraordinarily accomplished photographer who makes beautiful landscape, beautiful, compelling landscape photographs and also uh, heart-wrenching pictures that deal directly with his experiences uh, in the military and so much credit is due to mm. his ability to share those experiences um, in terms of making the Odyssey fly in the way that it did yeah, yeah. Ju- Julian Chinana yeah and and I, I want to mention everyone involved who's in the, the show it's Nathan maybe uh, Chris Veltri Brianna Robinson and Erica Duncan yep it's oh, the yeah. crew. Yeah. <laughs> um, and thank you to all of them, too. Yeah. And there were 30, 33 others that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you had a bigger gallery space, oh, absolutely. you could have shown uh, as well. Well, you know, listen, it's, it sounds like it's a perhaps a future show all on its own, right? Yeah, we'd love to do that. Um, yep. We'll get a busload oh, yeah. of veterans from Buffalo to come down and celebrate. I'm all for it. <laughs> sounds good. Yeah. Um have I, um, did I miss anything? Um, I know I gave you some things we talk about. Um, I didn't go question by question because most of it, you know, kind of, kind of comes out organically when we have these conversations. Was there anything I missed? Anything coming up? Anything you're working on? Um, no, I'm excited to be partnering with, uh, Higher Ground, a national veterans organization based in Idaho with a chapter in Buffalo for Odyssey to Higher Ground, which will combine, photographic engagement for veterans 
with uh, Higher Grounds Recreational Therapy Model in a series of workshops coming up later this year. I'm super delighted that the some of the veterans from the first round of workshops are going to be peer mentors in this next round, and uh, looking forward to seeing what they make and sharing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just overjoyed that their work has uh, has had the opportunity to be seen. Um, you know, that Ryan was able to find it and and call for some of the veterans to be included in her exhibit at your gallery. The work's being shown elsewhere coming up and is available. You know, there's a, the initial exhibit was four floors of work that included 70 life-size cyanotypes wow. combined with, you know, photographs of of the things that veterans carried during their deployment straight oh, wow. through to journal entries. Um, and then, you know, these incredible photographs that they made in response to the assignments that they were given. So, you know, there's more, more of that to be seen and I hope that it has the opportunity to get seen somewhere along the way. That's fantastic. Yeah. Something to look out for. Um, your website is, is brendanbannon.com, right? Correct. Yep. Uh, the most important picture, most, not the, mostimportantpicture.org is where you've collected all these projects. Yep. Those are, and we'll link to all that on the show. Excellent. And uh, any social media you like to uh, promote? Um, I mean, at this point, I'm deep in the throes of raising a four and a half year old. And uh-huh. my <laughs> Instagram feed is populated with uh, yes, uh, I know. a father's uh, astonished pictures of his daughter. But that's... <laughs> Well, congrats. Brendan yes. Bannon, Brendan Bannon. Um, uh-huh. And, uh, you know, once she's in school, I'll be able to start populating the rest of the <laughs> exactly. social media universe with work related to, to my profession. But right now. Oh, I know. Yep. <laughs> that's my passion. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I know you were, uh, you were on the phone uh, with your wife just as we were starting. And I imagine, like me, you have a, a great patient partner. Uh, I you do, get all these who's other things al- also an amazing <laughs> photographer um, in her own right. And, you know, I'd love to have people yeah. pay a visit to her work. Her name is Jenny Rose Stewart, and she's uh, at JennyRoseStewart.com. All right. Um, Good. I'm glad we got her name in there. Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> she deserves a lot of credit and praise for for what she does on her own and for... Uh, you know, supporting the the ability for for me to do these projects. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to do something like this um, without love and support, and um, she gives me that in spades. So, yep, that's fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Oh, this has been an amazing conversation, um, and I'm really happy that uh, I got to know you through the show and through Ryan, and uh, we will talk. I look um, forward to seeing you in person yeah. one of these days. It yeah, we'll do pleasure. it. We'll figure Thanks. it out. I actually love Buffalo, so I mean, hey, if you're up here, there. you know, we're planning to get up here. Give me a call. Uh, I will. I that absolutely goes will. For all of you out there listening to, yeah, I might not answer, <laughs> but give me a call. <laughs> Open invitation <laughs> with a possibility of a connection. <laughs> yeah, hit me up on Instagram. Uh, Good. All right. All right. Well, thanks, and uh, bye, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Real Photo Show with Michael Chauvin Dalton is a production of Real Photo Show, which you can listen to on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.